Hello, welcome to another episode of Braincast. This is Marcus. I'm joined today by Professor Leon Lagnardo. He's a professor of neuroscience at Sussex University, co-convener of the Sensory Function and Computation module, and a fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences. Leon, thank you for joining me. Hi, Marcus. Hi. Um, so, having a look at your background, you studied mostly physiology. What got yes. you into neuroscience in the first place? Uh, well, actually, I studied as a medical student um, at UCL, and uh, I was finding I wasn't terribly enjoying the medical course. The, the bit I enjoyed most was physiology, and especially neurophysiology, which uh, uh, is is and uh, was and is very strong at UCL. Um, and uh, towards the second year, I was thinking of dropping out of medicine and doing a degree in physics. Uh, but then the opportunity to do an intercalated degree came up. So I did a physiology degree. And at UCL, uh, I chose mostly um, the neurophysiology modules that were available. So what drove that, I think, was I, I liked I liked quantitative science. Uh, physics was my favourite subject to school. And then when I got into medical school, the, the aspect of what we were teaching that most kind of gelled with quantitative study of biology was the neuroscience and neurophysiology especially so you know for instance we learned about the Hodgkin Huxley model the action potential which is uh, one of the exemplars of applying maths to biology and we learned about that in detail we learned about how synapses work and uh, Bernard Katz's work on the basics of how synapses uh, function. And again, that, that was a beautiful example of uh, 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 understanding the physics that underlies how nerve cells work uh, and also applying mathematical descriptions of the of basic processes related to brain function. So I found that very exciting. Yeah, so that's what got me into neuroscience. Interesting, yeah. And so... What sort of stuff now uh, do you work on? What sort of projects have you got going on at the moment? So, um, I've always been interested in how synapses work. And I, through my career, also been interested in vision. So, we work on synapses that transmit visual information. And it turns out um, that early in the visual system, in the retina, these synapses are quite special. They're quite different to other synapses in the brain. And uh, uh, what I'm really excited about is that we've got to a stage. So when I started working on these sensory synapses, they're called ribbon synapses, way back in the early 90s or mid 90s, um, uh, the best we could do to try and investigate how they worked was to... Uh, isolate neurons from a retina and then say patch them with a, an electrode or image them under a camera and we were able to study how these synapses kind of worked as machines uh, but we weren't able to study how these machines worked uh, in situ in, in the retina of, a, of preferably a live animal uh, but we are now at that stage so we can look at uh, we, we study zebrafish live uh, zebrafish and uh, we're now at a stage where we can not only watch the operation of these synapses but actually get down to 
um, a level of description which is uh, getting down to the essence of what synapses do. So synapses transmit information and um, it gets back to trying to be quantitative, trying to use maths and, and measure things. If you want to measure information, um, the basic framework, the only fundamental framework that's available is something called information theory. And so what I'm really excited about now is that we have the ability to uh, measure the amount of information that visual synapses uh, transmit. Uh, first of all, by making uh, very high resolution measurements of how these synapses release their neurotransmitter glutamate, and then by applying information theory to those measurements. And um, those two, two things together, if I'd known I'd, we'd get to this stage where I started working on these things in the early 90s, uh, I would have been very, very excited. Anyway, and I'm still excited now. So yes, yeah, so that's the most exciting thing. And uh, we're extending that beyond the retina. We're, we're asking about how much information different types of uh, uh, the output neurons of the retina, the ganglion cells, and we're asking about how much information about a visual stimulus they transmit to different parts of the brain. Yeah. Um, so how do you look mm. at these synapses working mm -hmm. in yeah. zebrafish? Okay, yeah. So um, one of the basic techniques we use is something called multi-photon microscopy. That's a bit of a mouthful. Um, it's a technique which has become incredibly important in contemporary neuroscience because it allows you to look at the activity of many neurons simultaneously in a live animal, a live awake animal. And um, uh, when I say look, I literally mean look because uh, we make movies through the microscope of the activity of the neurons. And the way we watch the electrical activity is by um, genetically modifying the animal and um, making the neurons express proteins that fluoresce. Um, and there's two basic types of fluorescent protein that we can use. We can use calcium sensitive fluorescent protein so it turns out whenever a neuron is excited the calcium levels go up so uh, 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 in our movies the neurons light up when they uh, become excited the other uh, really important reporter that we use is a reporter for glutamate so glutamate is the most important excitatory transmitter in the brain and there's uh, a fluorescent protein that's been engineered to increase its fluorescence when it uh, uh, binds glutamate. And uh, so with that particular protein, we can watch the output from synapses in the live animal. So microscopy is very important. Um, we are uh, increasingly trying to relate these very direct measurements of neural activity and synaptic activity to behavior. Mm -hmm. So we also do behavioral experiments with zebrafish where we look at uh, 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 responses of the whole animal to visual stimuli so there are certain reflexes for instance the optimotor response is a is a response where the fish is trying to stabilize itself in the visual environment that's one example there's uh, other responses such as prey capture where fish have a very zebra fish have a very kind of stereotypical um, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a reflex it probably is a reflex uh, when they see something that they think is food, food-like, which is like a, the size of a paramecium, roughly. There's a very stereotypical response where the fish 
kind of gets a bit under the prey, fixates it a certain distance from its head, and then kind of makes a gulping <laughs> motion to mm. suck the food in. So that's prey capture. So yeah, so we, we can we can relate neural activity, synaptic activity to behaviour. And yeah. So you you compare these two elements for the in in the same experiments? Or uh, in the same yes, papers? not yet. Not yet. That's absolutely right. So um, so far, what we've done is we've uh, looked at how the retinal network or um, the, the downstream circuits from the retina um, um, respond to certain visual stimuli. And then uh, we've separately made behavioral measurements of fish to the same stimuli. But mm. we've not, we've not uh, 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 done it directly together. Uh, but I, I hope soon we're going to be doing that. We're going to be observing the neural activity and synaptic activity uh, uh, whilst also uh, uh, monitoring the behaviour directly. You can do that with separate fish, yes. You can you can observe the behaviour while monitoring directly. Yes, yes. Um, my, my understanding <laughs> of, say, multifoton microscopy would be that you'd have to have quite precise... Um, lining up of, of yeah. the technique. So, yeah. how would you do that whilst allowing it to exhibit <laughs> behaviour? Yes. So, what you, that's a very good question. What you do? So, uh, we're so we're looking into the brain. Yeah. So, what you do is you fix the head of the fish. Oh. Yeah. But you leave its tail free to move. Oh. And whilst the head is fixed, you can image into the retina and into the brain through the multifocal microscope. Um, but the fish can still generate a motor response to the stimulus that you apply. And we can assess that motor response by uh, watching its tail. So we, we uh, have a, a, an infrared camera uh, and we make movies of the tail motion. So they're very stereotypical motor actions that fish do. So uh, you can decode the motion of the tail in, uh, of the head fixed stationary fish you can decode that into what would happen if the fish's head was not fixed mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah which direction would it be turning in how fast would it be swimming mm. for instance um and um um yes yeah, so that's the trick yeah. fix the head and let leave the tail free to move <laughs> and what do you think is going to or what do you hope is going to be the impact of your research here? <laughs> Golly. If, if you had to. Pick, uh, yes, uh, the impact. Um, so, um, I guess, you know, we're in this game for a number of reasons, in the science game, research game, for a number of reasons. And um, uh, what motivates us is both internal and external. So, um, the most important impact for me <laughs> is actually internal, I'd say. It's, uh, you know, there are certain things I'd like to find out. And if I, you know, if we manage to find them out, I I'm quite happy. Uh, but of course, you know, we've all got egos and we also want other people to know about it. And we have to publish our work. Uh, and that's really, really important. There's no point doing experiments and uh, if you don't tell the world out there about what you've done. And um, I, I'd say in terms of impact, I, I'd 
to be honest and frank, my uh, the audience that I'm most concerned about are um, uh, fellow researchers. You know that they will value the work and find it interesting and find it useful. Uh, follow it up uh, if possible in various ways and so on. Um, so um, I'm not trying to cure blindness or anything like that. I'm trying to understand the basics of how the sensory processes work, especially visual processes. It would be wonderful if uh, uh, some of the basics that uh, 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 we uncover do inform um, translational areas in neuroscience, for instance, uh, but but that's not my primary goal. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Uh, what surprised you most about the work that you've done? Is there anything you've discovered that wasn't expected or, or made the most sense? <laughs> Golly. Um, something we did quite recently, actually. The question is how does a synapse represent information? How does it represent a visual stimulus, for instance? And the general thinking is that uh, in any part of the brain, um, it's the rate of synaptic events that uh, encode, say, the strength of a stimulus. Um, but what we found was that uh, in these sensory synapses in the retina, these synapses can do something very, very clever, which is they seem to be able to release vesicles, not just individually, but release them in multiples, you know, uh, two, three, four or five vesicles, basically simultaneously synchronized. And so what, what this boils down to is that the information about the strength of a visual stimulus, for instance, is being represented by the synapses, not just in the rate at which they release vesicles, but also in the amplitude of the synaptic events. Um, so it's a, to draw an analogy, um, if uh, uh, the dogma being that there's a, what's called a, a binary rate code uh, representing uh, uh, the strength of a stimulus, so uh, zeros and ones, that would be a binary code, mm -hmm. uh, what we're uh, what we found is that these synapses actually uh, you have more than zeros and ones as the symbols uh, you, you have zeros going up to about 11s or 12s mm. <laughs> so there are multiple symbols being used to represent visual information that was surprising to us and um, uh, we're exploring that at the moment. Uh, you can think of this as an alphabet. You know, how, how many letters in the alphabet mm. with which synapses uh, transmit information. And it turns out these sens sensory synapses in the retina have an alphabet of about 12 characters. Wow. <laughs> wow. So uh, these, the actual photoreceptors mm -hmm. that are then uh, outputting these 12 characters. Mm -hmm. wow. and, and the other... Retinal cells. Actually, we've done most of this in the in the the cells which are postsynaptic to the photoreceptors. So, um, yep. So the first step in vision is the involves the conversion of light into an electrical signal that occurs in the photoreceptors, and those have special sensory these specialized driven synapses. Uh, 
But actually, uh, we've been mostly looking at the, the neurons which receive the signal from the photoreceptors, the bipolar cells. Um, uh, we're going to get back to the photoreceptors. Uh, 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 I'm not sure it's a simple... Uh, uh, the, the, how those synapses work is quite how the bipolar cell synapses work. Okay. Uh, um, uh, we're going to look at that. Could you pinpoint uh, your most interesting or influential paper that you've read or encountered mm. that has uh, affected the way that you work or the things you're interested in? Yeah, I think I probably could. <laughs> Uh, I think actually there's there's two there's two. I think they're both papers are from 1953. Uh, one is Hodgkin and Huxley's description of the action potential, which was published in 1953, mm. which for which they won the Nobel Prize. And then the other paper was a paper by Bernard Katz, analysing synaptic transmission at the frog neuromuscular junction and showing that statistically you could describe how synapses work as a particular type of statistical process, a Poisson process. Um, in that paper they also provided one of the key pieces of evidence that uh, uh, vesicles are the units for transmitting information at a synapse. Um, and Bernard Katz won the Nobel Prize for for, for that as well. <laughs> mm. With the amount of things being discovered lately, it seems like we need more Nobel Prizes. Out. There's going to be a backlog. <laughs> oh, there's loads in neuroscience. If you look at the if you look at the new Nobel Prizes that have been awarded in in physiology and medicine, mm. uh, a surprising number actually are in neuroscience. Wow. Yeah, the, the brain is the best according <laughs> to the brain. Um, do you have yes. a, a favorite fact or part of the brain? <laughs> favorite fact about the brain oh golly something you would tell non-neuroscientists and they'd be uh, surprised to impress them uh, well one one really interesting fact getting back to the visual system which mm -hmm. I think tends to surprise not just the general public but students as well when I ask <laughs> tell them this is how many photons of light can a human detect and um, the number is actually surprisingly low. It turns out that a human can detect the arrival of just a, a handful of photons at the retina will reach consciousness handful. and will be perceived. Yeah, that's a, there's a lot of photons that could fit in my hand, I imagine. <laughs> Uh, but you, you fingers mean, you, count okay, the fingers, Mark. Yeah, five or six, five something or six. like that. Photons, wow. and actually, that that's so few photons that no more than one photon hits any individual photoreceptors. So that means that the individual photoreceptor in your retina, a single rod, hmm. can reliably detect a single photon. Yeah. That's the ultimate. You can't get smaller than a photon. Yeah. <laughs> and that's wow. the ultimate. And um, uh, so the sensitivity of our retina. This is this is only after you've been sitting in a dark room for an hour. You know you have to adapt to the darkness. But then your visual system gets to the ultimate sensitivity. Wow. Individual photons. And actually, I did my postdoctoral work with the the guy, a guy called Dennis Baylor, who uh, was the first to demonstrate directly that uh, uh, rod photoreceptors could indeed. Um, 
reliably signal the absorption of a single photon. Yes. Can we? Uh, I don't know if it's your your field of uh, knowledge here, but could we do experiments, or do we know about um, other things the eye can do at that point? If we can see, if if we can see individual photons, then could we see things potentially smaller than we could, or a better resolution than normal? If you don't have all the all the other noise going on there. Um, so uh, the the resolution in space of what we see is it's basically determined by um, how closely packed together the individual photoreceptors are. So to see detail, we use a part of our retina called the fovea. We have to focus our fovea. Or, you know, when reading a book, you know, we're focusing our fovea uh, uh, to make out the letters. And what determines your spatial resolution is how small the individual photoreceptors are and how closely packed they are. Um, and actually, in the fovea, the, the photoreceptors tend to be thinner and they're very, very, very tightly packed. Um, I'm told that that uh, in, in some animals, like birds, they're even high, more highly packed. So that they have, uh, eagles, for instance, have higher mm. spatial resolution uh, uh, regions uh, than us. But um, that's the limiting factor. Mm. Uh, for spatial resolution um, um, and actually to use that spatial resolution you need high light, relatively high light levels you can't mm. do that at low light levels where there are very few photons around um, and one reason is because in our fovea the photoreceptors that we're using aren't the most sensitive ones so I guess you know there are rod photoreceptors and there are cone photoreceptors yeah. The rods are the most sensitive, and we use them at, at night, at dusk, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, in this room right now, we're mostly using our cones, and they're less sensitive. They're mm. less sensitive, yeah. Okay. Uh, has anything you've discovered, or your own research, has that changed, or the way you go about life in any certain ways? I'm not sure that there's any particular discovery that we've made you know advancing understanding that has affected my life but I, w I would say has a pro almost certainly I'm not sh sure uh, of all the ways but almost certainly will have affected my life is more the w way we do research so when, when you do research um, there are times when you have to learn to be patient there are times where you have to cope with disappointment. There are times when you have to learn, have the discipline to uh, be methodical. And I'm sure that's spilt over from my working life into my general life. Mm -hmm. In the lab, I do a lot of uh, dealing with the equipment, <laughs> repairing it, making sure it works and stuff. And uh, that, that kind of tinkering thing that I do in the lab, I also do outside the lab. So I think it, it's more about an approach to problem solving, but also an approach to dealing with ups and downs, because doing research, there are ups and downs. It's, it's uh, you know, there's, there's the excitement of 
of finding new stuff, and that's wonderful. But then, you know, you get papers rejected when you send them to journals, and, you know, you have to deal with that as well. So um, that that experience must have affected how I deal with things outside the lab. I'm not sure of all the ways, but, yeah. <laughs> and I guess uh, a final question, a little silly one. If you could upgrade a part of your brain, yes. what would it be? <laughs> um, so in what we... The mathematical part of my brain, I think. So... Um, I I didn't have any formal maths teaching beyond A-level maths. And after then, it's all been self-taught with textbooks and, mm. and picking up the math skills that I felt I needed for particular problems. So I'd love to uh, uh, have sorted into my brain a um, more comprehensive well-founded general uh, 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 um, understanding of a bunch of mathematical concepts, some of which I only half understand and am not in command of at the moment. Mm. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that, that would be it. Well, thank you very much for all your time. Oh, yeah. Pleasure, Marcus. Thanks, Thanks for having much. me. Cheers. <laughs>